Well, good morning, Grace Bible Church. My name is Roman Wally. I'm the college pastor here, and this is week two out of four total weeks that we're going to be journeying through the book of Ruth. And so last week, what we did, if you weren't here with us, is we actually read this whole book in totality from beginning to end. We kind of had a joint story time. Uh, And then what we're going to do starting this week and over these next few weeks is start to pull out themes in the book of Ruth. So we won't be going chapter by chapter, we won't be going verse by verse, but what we will be doing is pulling selections out of the book of Ruth, trying to set before you and before us, together as a family, what are the main ideas here? What are the things that God has for us who's calling us to something bigger and better than just us and ourselves and our world? And so this morning, the theme that we're going to be drawing out, that we're going to be meditating on and thinking about what it means for our lives is this. That God is advancing his kingdom through mundane human life. God is advancing his kingdom through everyday, normal, mundane human life. This is true in the book of Ruth. This is true in our lives. God is at work advancing his kingdom in the mundane, in the everyday. This is a lesson that uh, I remember first being confronted with whenever I was in the midst of seminary. Uh, My wife and I, we moved to Dallas shortly after getting married, and I jumped fully into a master's program studying theology and the Bible, and our days couldn't be much more different, right? I woke up, and I read the scriptures, and I read books of theology. I heard professors teach me about God, and I wrote papers on this and prayed all the time. And my wife got up, and she spent time with the Lord, but then she went to work. (laughs) And she went and worked as a finance uh, professional, And every day she would come home and she would faithfully serve us and she would cook dinner for us and I would be hard at work reading the Bible and writing papers. And I remember one evening she would talk to me and said, I just don't get it. Like it it makes sense. It's clear for you what it looks like for you to serve the Lord, what it looks like for you to walk with God and have a role in what he's doing. But for me, what, what am I doing like I, I wake up and I spend time with the Lord and then I go and I work hard and I do my best at my job but then I come home, we eat dinner and I'm tired and I go to bed and rinse, wash, repeat, rinse, wash, repeat. So what's going on here? And I remember just kind of being dumbfounded and thinking, I know that's not true but I don't know what to tell you. And it bugged me because I had this ground-level conviction that it's not just pastors, it's not just missionaries, it's not just people who work for a church or some parachurch ministry that serve God. It's all of us. But what does it look like in the midst of being a stay-at-home mom, in the midst of being a firefighter or a teacher or a poultry farmer or a sales rep? What does it look like to be a part of God's kingdom advancing in the midst of your mundane life? think the book of Ruth has something to teach us that in the midst of what feels very normal very everyday to us in the midst of what feels pretty boring to us God is actually actively at work and here's the thing I think the book of Ruth gives us lenses to see his hand quietly and yet mightily at work in the midst of all of our stories and I think if we have eyes to see it we grow in having hearts to believe that and as we have eyes to see and hearts to believe, we actually are able to step in and be a part of what God is doing. God is at work advancing his kingdom in the mundane, everyday of our human lives. 
This is what we're going to see in the book of Ruth. So I would invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're not going to have any verses projected up on the screen, so I want you to see it directly in front of you. Go ahead and pull your Bible out or one out of the pew back in front of you and open up to the book of Ruth. We're going to take a look, first off, at the fact that God actually is, in the bigger picture of the book of Ruth, working to establish his kingdom. He's advancing his kingdom in this story. So I want to show you that first, because that might not be the first thing that comes to your mind as you think about this book. And then what we'll do as we move forward is say, okay, how is he doing that? We see that he's advancing his kingdom, but how is he doing it? So first off, we're going to look at the beginning of the book of Ruth and then the end. Here's just a good rule of thumb. Anytime that you're reading good literature, a good book, a good story, if you pay attention to the end, and then you pay attention, or I'm sorry, the beginning, and then you pay attention to the end and you compare them, they actually fit together. That's what a good story does. And this is what we see in the book of Ruth. We're going to see that this whole story is actually about God advancing his kingdom from beginning to end. So if you would, go ahead and open up to verse 1 of chapter 1. This is where we're going to see that the story starts in a dark place where God's people live in sin without a godly king. Pick it up, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And so we read that first verse, and immediately we're drawn into the story, right? There's this famine that's going on. It's oppressing this family. They're moving to a different country. What's going to happen to them? We immediately get drawn into the details of the story, but it's easy for us to pass over that very first phrase. In the days when the judges ruled. We read that and we might think, okay, well, the author's telling us this is when this is happening. When the judges ruled, that's when the story is taking place. And that's true. But the author's actually doing something deeper and more purposeful than that. He's echoing something from the book right before, from the book of Judges. So if you would, just go ahead and flip your Bible and look at the very last verse in the last chapter of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. And this is what the author of Judges says. He says, in those days, that sounds familiar, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This statement in the book of Judges is repeated at least four different times in the last few chapters of the book of Judges. And I don't know how many of you have actually read the book of Judges, but you should not read it as a manual for how to live your life, Okay. This book is a tragedy. Basically what it is, it's a picture of how things went terribly wrong. And it ends with this gigantic explosion of, this is what happens when people choose their own way. This is what happens when God's people reject God and walk according to their own plans. That's what the book of Judges is about. And even the best leaders in the book of Judges, all those tribal chieftains, the judges, get worse and worse and so if you thought Samson was that strong, awesome Hercules Jesus, you've misread Samson. <laughs> He's like the worst of the worst. The story gets darker and darker, and this is the way that the narrator wraps up the book of Judges. In those days, in the days when the judges ruled, there was no king in Israel, and everyone lived in chaos. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, her own eyes, and the land was covered in darkness. So when we flip over to Ruth, 
And we read in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, we read that and it should ring a bell. Oh, in that time, in that dark time, whenever God's people rebelled against God, they rejected relationship with him, they walked in their own way, and there was no godly king to lead them in obedience. It was in that time that the story of Ruth starts. So what we see is the story of Ruth starts at a point whenever God's people are in darkness, in the darkness of their own sin, they don't have a godly leader. But the story doesn't end there, right? So let's go ahead and flip on over to chapter 4. And what we're going to see at the end of chapter 4 is that God answers the problem of the dark days of the judges by providing the light of a godly king. So if you remember with me, after we read the story last week, this story of Ruth wraps up with Boaz saying, I'm going to marry Ruth, I'm going to care for Ruth, I'm going to care for Naomi. And God blesses their marriage. And in verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord granted her conception, and she bore a son. So God blesses this marriage, and he grants a child. And the whole town rejoices and sees this as God's favor towards widowed Naomi. And this is what they say in verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave this little boy a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. So if the story ends there, if the story really is just about Naomi, if it's just about Ruth and Boaz and this new little baby boy named Obed, then it would end there, right? The end, and everybody lived happily ever after. But the narrator doesn't finish. He keeps on going. Take a look at how verse 17 keeps on going. They named him Obed. And then Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And then we get this weird little biblical thing where you get this boring, boring genealogy right at the end of the book. So we have the generations from Perez all the way down to David. What is going on? Why does the author decide to end with this lame, confusing, boring ending? There's a purpose in this. The genealogy here is to show how God, even though he's providing for Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz, even though he's actively involved in their personal stories, there's a much bigger picture, right? It's so much beyond just these people. God is at work to provide a way for King David to come. If you look at the genealogy, it starts with Perez, I know all of you guys know Perez. He's your favorite Bible hero. Um, he's actually the son of a guy named Judah, and it's kind of a weird, sordid story back in Genesis. But basically, the important thing for you to know is that his father Judah, there was a prophecy over him that said God would bring kings from the line of Judah. So Judah has a son. His name is Perez. And then apparently, this is the family line that Boaz is involved in. And then Obed, who then gives birth to Jesse, who then gives birth to David. God is at work in a much bigger picture way to provide a way for a godly king to come to his people. This story is about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, but if we step back and we just look at the bigger picture, if we look at the beginning and the end of the book of Ruth, we see that God is bringing his people from the dark days of the judges to the days whenever godly king David would lead his people. God is answering the dark days of the judges with the light of godly kingship. 
This is a bigger picture. God is working to advance his kingdom. But then we step even further back, and we remember, wait, we're Christians. We're not just Jews, right? And so there's a much bigger story than just about how King David came about. Because King David is ultimately just the ancestor of King Jesus. And so if we were to flip over to Matthew chapter 1, which I'm not going to ask you to do because we're going to flip all over the book of Ruth this morning. But Matthew chapter 1, you can go and read it later, verses 1 through 6. The genealogy here in Ruth would be very, very similar to what we see for the genealogy of Jesus. We see Perez's name and all these other names, and then Obed, Jesse, David. Ruth is even included there all leading up to King Jesus. So, yes, this book is about God's care, his love, his faithfulness to these people. But then on a bigger scale, it's about God bringing about a great king to lead his people, King David. And then even bigger than that, he's bringing a king to rescue all humanity. Not just for Israel, but for all men, women, and children. King Jesus, who through his life, his death, his resurrection is bringing light into darkness, bringing life from death. This story, this book, on the big picture level, is about God advancing his kingdom. He's bringing a way for King David, and he's bringing a way for King Jesus. So we've seen that the book of Ruth is, in a big picture sense, the beginning and the end, it's about a much bigger thing than just these people's stories. It's about God advancing his kingdom. But how does that happen? If we look through the book of Ruth, we see God advances his kingdom through mundane human life, through just normal, everyday people as they live their lives. This is how he's advancing his kingdom. So let's just think about the people that he uses first and foremost. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Let's just talk about them for a second. As we look at them, we see that God delights to use people who seem unimportant. This is his joy, this is his delight to use people who seem unimportant in the eyes of the world. This is how he worked in the book of Ruth, this is how he works in daily life. So first of all, consider Naomi. Flip over to to Ruth chapter one again with me, and let's just look at these first five verses to get an idea of who Naomi is. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So who is Naomi? She's a widow. We know just from our experience that as a widow, she devastated emotionally broken. Like we don't have to get the historical context to understand that to lose your husband and your two sons, the people that you love most dearly in life, to lose them breaks you. She's a devastated person. 
And yet she's not just broken emotionally, financially she's without hope. In the ancient world, to be a widow is not just to be broken emotionally, but it's to be without protection and provision. Men were the ones, whether it was husbands or sons, who would work for, care for, provide for the family, and so she is now left without any of that. So she's devastated emotionally, she's destitute and poor, and then it's likely that she's beyond childbearing age. We saw she moved to Moab with two sons, and apparently they were grown whenever her husband died, and they lived there for 10 years, and then they died. This is a woman who's beyond childbearing age. She's got no hope for marriage going forward. That's why you get married in the ancient world, is to have children. So she is broken emotionally. She's destitute and poor. She doesn't have protection and provision from a male in her family, and she doesn't have any hope of getting married going forward. This is a woman without hope. And if you look at her from the eyes of the world, she is the low of the low. You don't have a rung on the ladder lower than a broken widow who can't bear children. And yet, God in his kindness and his mercy decides to work in her life, through her life, and through her crazy plan to bring about ultimately King David. God takes this broken, poor, hopeless widow, comforts her, and then through her, works to advance his kingdom. What about Ruth? Ruth is very much in a similar spot to Naomi. She's a widow in the ancient world. Her means of protection and provision are gone. And we might think, but she's younger, so she's got hope. She can have another husband. She can bear another child. She's good. But wait, who is Ruth? Take a look at verse 4. She's a Moabite. She's one of the Moabite wives that Naomi's sons took. For us, that doesn't mean much, but for an Israelite, you would see this and see something along the lines of Syrian terrorist, okay? That's literally how they would perceive a Moabite. It's too much to summarize all the history with Moab, but basically, the people, according to the scriptures, came from an incestuous relationship where enemies of Israel throughout their history tried to lead them astray through sexual immorality and idolatry and were actively against Israel throughout their history. Moab is enemy territory. This is the stigma that Ruth carries with her as she goes to the land of Israel. This isn't marriageable goods, right? <laughs> this is enemy of the state, scum of the earth. Watch out. She's trouble. And yet, God, in his mercy and his kindness, takes this woman and through her faithfulness and through her good character works to bring about his kingdom. She becomes the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of King Jesus. God uses, he delights to use seemingly unimportant people, people who the world will look at and see as enemies, as scum God is merciful to use. And then we think about Boaz. If you take a look at the beginning of chapter 2, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The word there for worthy is referring to his character. He is a good, upstanding man. He has 
good relationships with those around him. He's respected. And if we were to go through the rest of chapter 2, we would see he owns land and he has servants. And so he's got some wealth. He's got respect. He's got wealth. He's got some good things going for him. And so we might think this is the important guy. This is the guy who's going to lead the charge. He's going to be the main character. But just remember, Boaz is from Israel, and he's from Bethlehem in Israel. In the ancient world, Israel is nothing but territory to be grabbed for trade. We read all about Israel in the Bible, and we think that they're some gigantic, important nation in all of these kingdoms and empires. They're important according to God because he has called them, but historically speaking, they are small people to be conquered over and over and over. This is middle of nowhere. And then Bethlehem is like Podunk town out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere, right? This is like Panhandle, Texas, small little town. It's not East Texas, right? Yeah. Um, so Boaz, even though he's wealthy, even though he has favor, he's in the middle of nowhere. Nobody would remember his name. And yet, God in rich kindness and mercy takes this man who would never be remembered otherwise and uses him to be the great-grandfather of David, to be an ancestor of Jesus, to be a key part of God advancing his kingdom. God delights to use unimportant people. So what does this mean for us? Because we think about our lives. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I work at a bank. I teach kids who don't appreciate me. <laughs> right? We could go on and on. Who am I? What do I have to offer? How is my story a part of this big story of God advancing his kingdom? I don't see the connection on a daily basis. What we're reminded in the book of Ruth is that it's not about who you are. It's not about what you think you have to offer. It's about who God is. He's the one who comes in and takes people who are unimportant in the eyes of the world and gives them key roles in advancing his kingdom. Men and women will not remember my name. Men and women will not remember your name generations from now. But there's a God in heaven who knows you, who loves you, and who's filled you with his spirit if you've trusted Christ and will use you in quiet and yet mighty ways to advance his kingdom. We'll talk about how we should have our eyes open for that, but the first and foremost thing that we need to do is get our eyes off of ourselves. When we focus on who we are, how little we are, how little we think we have to offer. We're keeping our eyes down here on the ground, and we need to lift them up to the God who is mighty through our weakness, the God who uses seemingly unimportant people to do significant things, whether people see it or not. This is who God is. This is how he works. This is who you are if you've trusted in Christ. Lift your eyes up and remember. But God doesn't just use seemingly unimportant people. He also works through life's chance circumstances. So if you take a look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I'd like to show you more than just this one example. But in the beginning of chapter 2, we just have time to see how the author uses irony to highlight God's sovereignty. What seems like chance to us is actually the invisible hand of God guiding and working so take a look at the beginning of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose eyes I shall find favor. So Ruth is saying, we're hungry, we don't have any food. I need to go out and find somebody who's going to let me pick up the grain that just falls to the ground. Not everybody's going to do this. She's got to try to find somebody who's obedient to God's commands, who let the poor come and pick up grain. So she doesn't know who that's going to be, but she says, I need to go do this. So end of verse 2, Naomi says, go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The ESV says here that Ruth just happened to come to the field of Boaz. In the Hebrew, literally what it says is her chance chanced upon this field belonging to Boaz. Basically what the author is doing is just by a sheer stroke of luck, she happened to end up right at the perfect spot, right? The author doesn't believe in chance. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he talks about how God ended the famine. There was a famine in the land of Israel, and then God visited his people and provided food. This isn't random weather patterns. This is God intervening. In chapter 4, verse 13, when Ruth has a child, he says, God granted conception. She had been married 10 years before she didn't have a child, and yet when she gets married to Boaz, she has a child. Why did that happen? It's not because Boaz is more fertile, not because of some scientific reason. It's because God granted this. It's not opposed to science. It's in line with science. We won't talk about that right now. God works through chance circumstances, and the author uses this. She just happened to end up there to highlight God's invisible hand at work through what seems like random chance. Just perfect that she ends up with a man who not only will recognize her character, who not only will care for her and be generous to her, but will actually marry her and care for her, both her and her mother-in-law. And then God works through all of that to provide the way for King David to come and ultimately the way for King Jesus to come. What seems like chance in our lives is actually the hand of God at work. Do we have eyes to see it? I'll just share a personal story about how I've seen this play out in my life. Uh, back from 07 to 11, I was a student here at SFA, and whenever I got here, if you would have talked to me, I would have told you I was a Christian, but if I was honest with you, it would have been obvious that I wasn't. Um, and at this point, I would just kind of thrown myself into uh, what SFA often is, is just a crazy party time, right? Um, and as I was walking through that, by chance, I randomly met this girl named Tasha. And Tasha was actually a girl who was solid in the Lord, and she was actually plugged in here. Uh, and I met her in a history class randomly, and I sat down next to her at lunch randomly one day. I looked at her and thought, I never do this, but I'm going to sit down and talk to her. And we became really good friends. And as I made stupid decision after stupid decision after stupid decision, I got more and more confused. So I'm trying to figure out who God is. I'm trying to figure out who I am and what's going on in my life. And one night, one random night, I'm sitting with Tasha outside of our dorms. And I'm trying to process through everything that's going on in my life and how God could be involved in this craziness. And she's doing the best that she can to listen to me, to encourage me, and to speak the truth to me. She's doing the best that she can. But honestly, it doesn't go super well. <laughs> 
It ends without a conclusion, and it's super late at night. It's like 2 in the morning. So she goes back to her dorm. I go back to my dorm, and I'm about to go to bed when I get a text message. It's from Tasha, And she says, hey, I just got this random Facebook update that gave me a Bible verse. I read it, and I thought you should read it, and I sent it to you. Randomly, I thought, well, that piques my curiosity enough to go take a look at it. So before I go to bed, I actually go and I get on my computer, I pull up Facebook, I have a message from her, and it's this random verse from the middle of a random book called Ecclesiastes that I had never heard of. And I read that verse, and for the very first time in my life, I heard the voice of God. I read the word of God, and God spoke to me. And for the very first time in my life, I believe that there's a holy God who's loving and he speaks through his word. And I was astounded. And my life was never the same. From that one moment, my life changed forever. There were so many chance events leading up to that one random night where I read one random verse from the Bible and God grabbed my heart. I looked back early on and thought, wow, what are the chances? <laughs> and I look back now and I see the invisible hand of God at work through all of those different situations and scenarios and conversations. Brothers, sisters, what are the chance events in your life that you just need to open your eyes to, that God is actively at work and inviting you in to participate with him? Who are the neighbors that are around you? Who are the people in your family? Who are the people in your classes, the people that you live with, the random people who don't know the Lord? Who are the parents of your kids' friends that you get to spend time with at baseball games and football games? The book of Ruth reminds us that God is active in what seems so mundane and so regular and so boring and so blasé. To us, he's actively at work. He uses unimportant people, and he works through chance events. What if we had the eyes to see that and hearts to believe that so that we might be the kind of people who step in when an opportunity arises and say, I think God's at work here. I think he's present. And because his spirit's in me, I'm going to step in and be faithful. Might we grow as those kind of people? Let me pray for us. Almighty God, there's something beautiful to acknowledge that everyday normal life is actually beautiful and it's charged with your presence. There is nothing too lowly for you to scoop up. There is nothing too boring and blasé for you to be excited about. Your hand is at work in what we take for granted. There is no special class. There is no A-team in your people. We are together all, the church. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have been filled with your spirit, Lord, we are your representatives. So open our eyes to see the ways that you're at work in us, around us, and through us. We lift our eyes from ourselves to look at you, the one who's mighty, the one who works in kingdom ways, 
even though they're quiet, bend our wills, mold and shape our hearts so that we might be faithful as we live out these days you've given us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.